Open your Bibles with me to the book of James, chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I'm going to ask that uh, you also pray with me before we get started this morning. Father, it's my prayer that you would deliver to the hearts of your people your message this morning and that um, we would be leading this people that have gathered appropriately in worship and response. We want to be true like you are true. And we want to trust you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We're going back to the book of James. Um, Some of you may remember that we were here in October when I preached um, a few Sundays in a row. And we're going back to James chapter 1. Remember that this book is written to believers. This is written to the church. And this is written to people not to teach us or others how to attain or retain salvation. But this is written to the church to say this is how you are to be. This is what salvation does to you. This is how you interact. This is how you treat each other. This is how you respond. It's not a rule book. This is a wool book. This is what do his sheep look like. In chapter 1, the context for chapter 1 is test and trial. This life being a compilation of difficulties. And what do we do with that as God's people? What do you do? What's our response to what seems unfair, hurtful, difficult, confusing, dark, scary? That may have described many of you this morning. There may be other darknesses, difficulties that you're thinking right now. What do we do with that? And in light of the last two Sundays that Ben has preached, the way, the true, the ultimately true, the ultimate, ultimate reality. What do we do with that ultimate reality? Living in a life made up of consistent difficulty and trial. What do we do with that? It's hard enough just to get our head around it. <laughs> He's ultimately true. He is the only true. But what do we do with that? And I titled this message, Don't Be Deceived, and that's where we'll, that will be the hinge that this swings on this morning, but really, what do we do with the way, the true? He can be trusted. We trust him. He's the only one to be trusted, and that sounds simple. And many of you would agree and maybe amen that this morning, sitting here in this room with these people. It's easy to say, yeah, he can be trusted. But the quickest of us to agree with that probably aren't going through many difficulties right now. If, if you're quick to say, yeah, man, he can be trusted, things are probably going your way. And that's very easy to say. But it's hard to live. It's hard to live out. So hopefully, we're going to gather some wool this morning and figure out what do we do with that. How do we do that? How do we be people who really trust the true one? How do we do that? 
in light of perplexing, confusing difficulties. How do we really trust him? Let's read James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here's here's the first thing we do with what do you do with the difficult, scary, hard, perplexing, confusing things that this life is made up? James would call that the test. They are trials and tests of our faith. What do we do with them? How do we really trust him? And the first thing James says in 16, right here, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived by what? Do not be deceived by people who don't like the church or don't want to come. Do not be deceived by the people who argue with you in the office. Do not be deceived by unbelieving family members. Do not be deceived by TV. Do not be deceived by the internet. Do not be deceived by what? What James is saying here is, do not be deceived by your own heart. He's talking about us. Our heart. Do not fool yourself. Do not be literally led astray in the Greek, led astray by your own heart. Don't fool yourself into thinking that he's out to get you. And in the context of 13 and, uh, 13 and 14 and, and then 15, let no one, when he is tempted, say, I'm being tempted by God. James would say, don't deceive yourself. Don't fool yourself. He's not out to get you. Don't listen to what you're saying to yourself. It's like our heart is deceptive. We know this. We've, we've been through these, these passages, Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things, all things, all wickedness. The most wicked thing on earth is my heart. And it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, no one is righteous. No, not one. My throat is an open grave. It can't get any worse than my heart. I can't fool myself. It's like looking in the mirror. Mark did a great job with the, um, with the bulletin picture. It's like looking in the mirror. We do this all the time. We look in the mirror, and we want to think what we're seeing is pretty good looking, or we hope, and we... You know, a little bit of this. And and the longer you sit there, you think, looking all right. When really, you don't. I don't. And it's funny that the the next time we walk by a mirror, we stop and do it again. Yeah, it's getting better every time I look. (laughs) No, it isn't getting any better. It's not getting better, but the longer we look at it and the longer we talk to ourselves into thinking... This is getting all right. I'm looking okay. Our heart's deceptive. You look in the mirror, you see something that's not there. You cannot trust your heart. You can't trust what you feel. 
You can't trust what you see in front of you. Our heart will take us bad places anytime. But listen, church, our heart will especially take us to bad places and deceit when trial comes, when difficulty comes. Your heart will take you to verse 13. This is God's fault. That's where your heart will take you when difficulty comes. This is his fault. What's he doing to me? He's tempting me. He wants to see me fail. He's out to get me. And that's what your heart will say. And your heart is the most wicked thing on earth. Understand that. If we're going to be a people who really trust him, we have to know first, our heart will deceive us. And James says, do not be deceived. Don't fool yourself. Don't see with these eyes. I want you to see this in in Scripture. Look at Exodus chapter 15. We should be fairly familiar with this. About a year, a little over a year ago, uh, Ben was preaching and we we looked uh, at these people of God who were delivered from Egypt. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. And we see what happened to them right after they've been delivered. And we see how they respond to him. And I think we're probably going to see ourselves in here too, I hope. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Here is the father, the father of lights, reassuring his people, trying to help them, give them some reassurance, a little bit of a promise, a little bit of coming through. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he what? Tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer. He's reassuring them. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. Chapter 16, they set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed the land of Egypt. Month and a half after they had been redeemed. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died in the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Month and a half, here they stand, redeemed, saved, delivered. And they say to Moses and to God, you're trying to kill us, aren't you? What are you trying to do? Here we stand this morning, redeemed, saved, delivered. And do we not do the same thing to him? Let me bring it home just a little bit. This hits home for me. The the people of Israel were deceived by their own heart and their own circumstances. Their bellies started to hurt. They're getting hungry. They're looking for water. And they're thinking, man, at least we ate back there. You're trying to kill us. 
And if you think that we're not deceived by our own circumstances, especially when the test comes, the test that God sends to see if we're faithful, to prove our faithfulness and to keep us at the table of faith, what do you do with infertility? Are you kidding me, God? How can this be good? I thought you said be fruitful and multiply. That came from my heart. And then I thought, who was the other guy that threw Scripture in Jesus' face? Oh, yeah, Satan. My heart is deceitful. And even if I don't understand it, and my feelings in my heart tell me, he's out to get me. It's not true. My heart will deceive me. Diabetes, visual impairment, rebellious children. Are you trying to kill us, God? You can fix this, but you're not. A faithful father dies and leaves his wife and six-month-old. Are you kidding me? How can that be good? What are you trying to do to us? It's not making any sense. Someone walks from the table of faith. Spouse walks from a marriage. What in the world are you up to? What are you thinking? How is that helpful? You see how deceitful our heart is? Our heart is deceitful. James would say, do not be deceived. He can't tempt you. Don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself. Don't look with him with a suspicious glance. You know what a suspicious glance is? It's this. That's what the people did in Exodus 15 and 16. Belly got hungry, and they looked at Moses, and God went, what are you doing? And you know what a suspicious glance says? I don't trust you. I don't trust you. This right here, that's I don't trust you. And my heart takes me there all the time. I don't trust you. And the people didn't trust him. They didn't trust Moses. They didn't trust God. And they cut him a suspicious glance and a suspicious glare. And we do it because our heart is deceptive. It will deceive us. My throat is an open grave. That's what James is talking about. Don't be deceived by your trial. Don't be deceived by your test. Don't be deceived by your feelings, your emotions, what you see in front of you. Don't be deceived by it. Don't immediately assume he's trying to, out to get you, that he's trying to kill you, that he's trying to tempt you. Don't do it. You can't trust your heart. You can't trust what you see in front of you. He's not trying to kill you. He's not pulling the rug out from under you. He's not trying to kill you. He is testing you. And he can be trusted. Why can he be trusted? Last week's sermon. He is the only ultimate truth. Nothing else can be trusted. Nothing else is really true. That's why he can be trusted. The second point that I have this morning is that the, um, the father of lights can be trusted. Look at verse 17 of James again. James chapter 1 verse 17. The father of lights can be trusted. 
And he can be trusted for a couple of reasons. Let's look at verse 17 again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There's some symbolism here. He's the Father of lights. He's the creator. The creature trusts the creator. We don't cast a suspicious glance at the Father of lights. He doesn't even have a shadow. He is not a suspect. He can't be. He's all light. There's not even a shadow. He doesn't have seasons. He doesn't change. There's no shadow. If you're going to cast a suspicious glance, cast it at your own heart. Cast it at each other's heart. Help each other. But don't cast a suspicious glance at the Father of lights. There's no shadow. He's no suspect. He can be trusted because he's all light, all true, all the time. He can't even have a shadow. The second reason the Father of lights can be trusted is because he makes promises and he keeps them. Chapter 1 of James, look, just look back at verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and the steadfastness, let the steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. This is what he says when the test comes. I'm doing something to you and it's good. It's going to complete you. My purpose for you. I promise it is. I promise this test, this difficulty. I promise it's going to produce something in you that you need. I'm giving you the goods that you need to trust me, to endure, and to stay and not leave the faith. I'm giving you the goods. Let it produce steadfastness in you. That's a promise. And the second promise, right here, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has what? Promised to those who love him. His promise is eternal trueness, eternal life, eternal reality, real reality. Not this, not what you see in front of you, not a trick, not a fake out. But only reality, only true, all the time. A crown of life, of real life. That's a promise. And he always makes his promises. A third promise that he makes. You just take a quick glance at Scripture. Just a quick glance. This is not some elder trick. I'm just saying, look at your Bible, and you'll see over 20 times in the Bible, God says directly to his people this phrase, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. And that, you know, the Bible's big. 20 times doesn't sound like all that much. But he says it to his people all the time. Over 20 times, he says, God says to his people directly, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. And I won't leave you. And I won't forsake you. And on top of that, I won't leave you. And I won't forsake you. Plus, you know what? I ain't going to leave. I'm right here. I'm not leaving you. And I won't turn my back on you. I won't leave you. And I won't forsake you. I won't leave you and I won't forsake you. That's eight. You tired of it yet? He says it 20 times directly to his people. I promise you. The test comes, it's going to produce something in you. You endure and let it have its effect. Eternal crown of life. Reality. Me. You get me. And I am not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. 
His tests come with promises. That's why he can be trusted. The Lord gave me an illustration last week that um, I hope is helpful. Um, Lily, some friends of ours gave Lily a gas-powered four-wheeler. It's a little bitty one, and it's really cool. Somebody asked me the other day that I hear me talking about it more than they do Lily, and that I'm vicariously living out my childhood with no four-wheeler through her, and I probably am. They gave us this four-wheeler. It wasn't running. Their kids had outgrown it, and I got it running. But Lily really likes to ride it at night because it's got a headlight. And she loves to ride it around the house at night. And so that's kind of our thing. A couple nights a week, we'll get out there and she'll just ride it around the yard at night because she loves that headlight. Well, the problem here, enter difficulty. Here goes difficulty, uh, fear, problem. Monday and Tuesday, both the afternoons, the evenings are getting longer, the sun's up a little longer, and we've noticed, she's noticed the fact that coyotes are headed to the woods behind our house. She sees them. And I didn't bring them to her attention. She saw them, <clears throat> two coyotes. Now, she's seen those at Papa's house, but that's no big deal because she don't live at Papa's house. <clears throat> she lives at her house, and there are coyotes that she can see from her house. And I could tell it bothered her a little bit, but she didn't say anything. So when we go to ride the four-wheeler the next night, uh, we get all jazzed up. I'm turning on every exterior light we have. I mean, it's... I always sit out there and watch her. She has a helmet. And so (laughs) she takes off, just about to take off riding, and then she stops and hits the brake and turns back to me and says, "Um, what what do I do if the coyotes come? And so it's on her mind. And I was like, honey, listen, the, the coyotes will not come up here. You have this cool headlight, and they're scared of headlights. They will not come near people. They are scared they'll run the other way. Okay, so she goes about five more feet, stops, hits the brake. Well, what if they get mad because some of them are scared and the other ones get mad at me because I've scared some of the others and they come and they get me? No lie. This is what she's saying to me. And I say, honey, I promise you, I promise you they're not coming. Those coyotes are so scared. I've got, it looks like the airport out here. I've got every light in the house. They're not coming. I promise you. They're not coming up here and they won't hurt you. And so she goes around the house. One time she comes back and she stops. She said, I heard something. I heard something, and I said, baby, I promise you that none of these coyotes are going to come up here and get you. She said, what if the king coyote (laughs) comes and gets me because he's mad because I scared off the other ones? You hear what's happening? Her heart's deceiving her because of what she saw. Her heart's deceptive. It's deceiving her into being fearful and not enjoying her four-wheeler. And so I got down, finally, I got tired of promising. I got down on one knee and I just looked at her with this reassuring look. And all I did was this. I just smiled at her. And I didn't, I was tired of arguing. I just smiled at her and she said, she just, her shoulders dropped. She goes, I trust you, Dad. (laughs) And that's, that's all she said. Now, it wasn't, it was reluctant. I trust you, Dad. But it was beautiful. Because what she did then was she took off and she enjoyed her four-wheeler. She was still scared because she'd come around, stop, look at me, (laughs) go again. And she said, don't go inside, don't go in the barn, stay right there. I promise I'm not going anywhere, I'm staying right here. Was she still scared? Yes, she was still scared. Was she still thinking about coyotes? You know she was. 
But she trusted me just enough to keep going. She trusted me just enough to go one more time around. And while that is reluctant, it's sweet for a dad to hear that. Do you see the the parallel here? When God says, trust me. I know you're scared. I know you're confused. I know this hurts and I know it's not easy. Trust me. I promise you. I promise you. Nothing's going to kill you. I won't kill you. (laughs) I promise you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm sitting right here. I promise you. He wants to trust him just enough to keep going a little bit. Go around one more time. His mercies are new every morning. Trust him just enough. You know what what if is? That what if game that Lily was playing? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've done that. Well, what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? Turn to Isaiah chapter 8 quickly. What if is conspiracy? And we love to follow conspiracy and play the what if game. The Assyrians are ultimately about to come and everybody's freaking out. And this is what God says. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy. Don't play the what if game. Well, what if they have a bigger army? Well, what if they come early in the morning? What if we're not ready? What if, what if, what if? What if, what if, what if? Do not call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Trust me. Trust me. Don't play the what if. When the family member walks, when, the, when your marriage is crumbling, don't play the what if. Trust me and what I say. Another interesting thing about Lily is um, right before we were about to go in, she came around and she stopped and instead of arguing with me, she quoted me. Coyotes are scared of headlights. <laughs> yep, they are. Right on going. She was quoting and reminding herself what her daddy said, what he promised. Do you see it? And he said, do not call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. You trust me. Trust me. Remember what I said? Remember what I promised over 20 times? Remember what this is doing to you? It's producing and completing my purpose for you. She remembered what her daddy said. So how do we know? How do we know that we're really trusting him? How am I reminded that I can really trust him, that he'll make good on his promises? I know it because he's true, and he makes promises. And this is what I remember. My heart can't be trusted. He can. Mine's deceptive. If you're still sitting there thinking, why does it have to be this way? Why did he do it like this? Why does trial make me steadfast? Why can't a lot of money make me steadfast? Why can't ease make me steadfast? Why does he do this? And I'm going to borrow a phrase from a book I'm reading. Paul Tripp calls this awesome. I hope we can own this. 
He says what this does, difficulty, trial, the test, it creates pain-stained worship. And pain-stained worship is the most beautiful. I don't know if you can grade worship. I don't. It's beautiful, though. Pain-stained worship is beautiful. Here's what I mean. Two weeks ago, when we're going ice skating with Lily and her friends for her birthday, and then we have a feast with presents, and she looks at me and says, Daddy, I love you. I trust you. That's sweet. I appreciate that. But of course you trust me and you love me. You just had a feast and an ice skating party. It's going great for you tonight. Of course you trust me. But pain-stained worship, sitting on a four-wheel, still a little bit scared, going, I trust you. That means more. That's more beautiful. Pain-stained worship. Psalm 57, look at it. This is David's pain-stained worship. Verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 57. This is what pain-stained worship looks like. David is perplexed. He's anxious. He's scared. He's in danger. He's running from Saul. And this is what he says. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. When? Until the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. That's pain-stained worship. I'm going to trust you until the destruction goes away. You are the one I'll take refuge in. I will not take refuge in what I see and what my feelings want me to feel. I will not be deceived by my heart and say you're out to get me. I will trust and take rest in you. I will rest in you. I won't be suspect of you. I won't be suspicious of you. I will take refuge in you. And then you see the promise there. Who is he crying out to in verse 2? He's crying out to a God who fulfills his purpose for me. That's James 1, 2, and 3, and 4. James chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, and when it does, it will perfect and complete you. David knew that. I know that this trouble, I can trust you that this trouble is going to fulfill your purpose for me. Doesn't mean I'm not still scared. (laughs) Doesn't mean I'm not still sad. It doesn't mean I'm not still perplexed. But I know that the ultimate truth, I know that the Father of lights who has no shadow is doing something to me for his purpose and his glory. I'm going to trust him. And I'm not going to look at him like this. What? I don't trust you. You're out to get me, aren't you? Pain-stained worship packs a punch. Pain-stained worship is beautiful because this is, this is what's so beautiful about it is that it's unique. Who worships in pain? That's wool. We do. And it's beautiful to in pain say, I trust you. I take refuge till this passes because I know you're going to fulfill your purpose for me. I trust you. Pain-stained worship is beautiful. You still asking why? <clears throat> you still sitting there thinking, man, I don't understand why it has to be this way. It's, you don't know my difficulty. You don't know how hard it is for me to trust with my situation. You don't understand. 
Well, you need to hear something. You're not the only one having trouble trusting in here. It's every one of us. We are all struggling to trust him. It's a fight, what Ben calls a rage. As you rage after Christ, you rage and you strive to faithfully trust him. And you can't do this alone. One more passage. Hebrews chapter 3. This is a beautiful connection. Hebrews chapter 3. This is uh, the writer of Hebrews quoting David in a psalm who is paraphrasing what has happened to what we read at the beginning in Exodus. Do you see it? This is the writer of Hebrews quoting psalm, which is talking about the story that we read at first, the people and how they were suspect of God and they didn't trust him. Look at chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray. That's deceived, same word. They are always deceived and they always go astray in their heart. Do you see the connection? Their hearts deceive them. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They weren't deceived. It doesn't mean I would take the difficulty away, but they would have been able to rest in me. He keeps going. Here, here's what, verse 32, I mean verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, <clears throat> be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Why would they fall away? What he says here, take care, be careful, don't fall away. Why would they fall away? Because they were tested and they were suspect of God and they walked. This is too hard. You're out to kill me. I'm out. That's what leads to this unbelieving heart leading to fall away from the living God is the test that he just quotes in 7 through 11. The test comes, be careful, lest there be any of you who thumb your nose at God because it gets hard. Be careful. Don't, don't do that. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened, there it is again, by the deceitfulness of sin. You can't avoid the deceitfulness of your own heart, and you can't really trust him on your own. You have to have this exhort. I need Exhort. Exhort meaning encourage. Exhort meaning appeal. Um, I thought it was interesting that one of the ways this Greek word is used is to beg. It's, it's frequently used to beg somebody. I, I, I hear remind. Exhort. I need somebody in my life. I need two or three men who are in my life who can encourage appeal, beg, and remind me to trust him. I need that. And there are many of you here in our fellowship and that are visiting, and you don't have people like that who can exhort, encourage, appeal, remind, and beg you to trust him. Beg you to trust him. Appeal to you to not listen to your heart, to not follow your emotions, but to trust him. 
He says, take care. Don't let anybody fall away. You need each other. And if you're not connecting with anybody else here, I would say you're in danger. If you don't have anybody else from this fellowship who can appeal, beg, and remind you, you're in danger. Maybe of falling away because of the testing. That's serious. That's scary. Don't fall away. Allow others in. You need it. And, and pragmatically, I don't know if you realize this or not, but we're continuing to grow. When this was 100 people, Ben could be that, pretty much. He could be the chief exhorter. <laughs> he can do that with 100. We're not 100 anymore. We have families that have covenanted, over 100 families and other families waiting to join. What do you do with that? You, you can't just expect him to be that for over 300 people. You can't do it. You need each other. Connect. Exhort. You need to open yourself and open your home to others and say, who do I have in my life who can beg, appeal, remind me to trust him? Because if the tough times aren't already there, they're coming. And when they come, you'll have to have those guys. Ladies, do you allow your husband to beg, appeal, remind you? Are you submissive? as the church is to Christ, to say, where do we need to trust him? Men, do you listen? Are you, do you have open reason stance to your wife to listen for a beg, appeal, remind, to trust him? Man, I'll, I'll go out there and say, if, if you're a man in here and you're trying to lead your family in this fellowship and you don't have two or three other guys who can at any moment go, your heart's deceiving you. You're fooling yourself, I think. Because remember what dad said? Remember what he promised? If you don't have somebody who can say that to you without you throwing something at them, if you don't have anybody like that in your life, you're, you're on the edge of a cliff. You're in a danger zone. I don't see how you can do it without others. That's why he said, be careful. Be careful. You need each other. My heart's too deceitful to do this on my own. It's too much of a struggle for me to trust him and remain steadfast. I need... I need someone in the same boat as me to help me. When you look around, everybody's in the same boat. Nobody in here wants to trust him. Nobody. Because my throat's an open grave. My heart is the most wicked thing on earth. So is yours. And we need each other. Don't trust yourself. Consider his promises. Trust him. And seek out exhort relationships. I hope you'll do that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it's... Um, It's hard to trust you sometimes. And I pray that we would be a people who have a unique looking pain-stained worship that we don't run from our test and our trial, but that we trust you in the middle of it and that other people see it for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We seated just for a minute. <clears throat> Ben's got a few families, uh, to pre or one or two families to prevent, present. <clears throat> Let me just say this. My great fear is that you think me or 
any other leadership here has got this figured out, this trust thing, man, I need you to help me uh, trust him and not trust my own heart. And that's where community comes in. The, the crazy thing is verse 17 when he says every good and perfect gift comes from God. That means that God's people see trial as a good gift. <laughs> that's crazy. And that's very unique. And I need you to help me remember what daddy said so that I can say this trial is good. And this family over here needs that family back there. Needs this family. Needs that family. Needs that family. Because you cannot do it alone. I cannot say that enough. If you are sitting there thinking, he's talking about connecting and, and having people over to my house. I don't, what is that? Ask one of us. Ask somebody that is doing that and they can tell you. This is what happens when you sit down and have a meal with another family. And you start asking those questions. If you're a guy in here and you say, I need, I need that exhort relationship. I need the remind, beg, appeal. And I don't have it in my life. I mean, you ask anybody within, if you could throw your pen and hit somebody, ask that person. They can help you, and they can find somebody that will help you find that relationship. All right? Ben? Worth mentioning, uh, there's a honeymoon period that lasts about three months to six months when someone becomes a new member. You get emails from them about once a week. Hey, man, I got this out of the sermon, or hey, we're having so-and-so over for dinner. And then there's about a year-long period where um, it's just kind of silence. And then maybe a year where either they move to a rich relationship, connecting with other people and being searched by other people, or they go the direction of just waiting to rip your head off or when they're going to leave and how they're going to leave. We've just seen it too many times. And some of y'all are in that pleasure right now. And, man, I beg you to just see a raging, genuine people, searchable people. Brad, what he's preaching up here today, he's living out. Because I'm in his trash. He's in mine. I will, I'm willing to be in yours. And you need to be in mine. Or you need to be in the person sitting next to you and saying, hey, who's your Lord right now? Who are you trusting in? Are you raging after this Christ with me? That's what membership is. It's like this corporate journey that we're all on where we're really walking with each other and involved in each other's lives. If you want to be part of a church and have no use for that, join a club. You can find those in clubs, that sort of relationship. In fact, you might find more, a deeper relationship than we could have here. But this is a place where we're supposed to be involved in each other's lives. We're supposed to be reminding each other, hey, trust in him. <laughs> he's got all the lights on. He's the father of lights. We can trust him. You got no use for that sort of intimacy. You have no use for being known in that way or knowing in that way. Then you need to do some reading on what the church is. That's what the church is. There's no such thing as anonymous family. Family knows each other and walks with each other. So speaking of that, on that note, let me have the lanes come up. Where are they? There we are. <clears throat> This is Derek and Lindsay, and I've got the girls written down. Alyssa is seven, Ava is four, Audrey is 16 months, and um, Lord willing, Owen will be here eventually. Young Owen, we can keep going until we get a boy. <laughs> oh, I want y'all to get to know this family. And, um, you know, like we're talking about, being part of each other's lives, it involves picking up the phone, 
Or people are like, man, I, I started to call somebody and have them over for dinner the other night, but I don't have their phone number. <laughs> and I pull out, pull out the phone book, and they're right there. Or you can call Biola in the office and say, hey, can you give me somebody's phone number? I want to have them over for dinner and get to know them and be known by them. This is a family that you need to get to know, a new, new family part of our membership. I met with them. I've heard their story, heard their testimony. They, um, they seem to be walking with the Lord. They have a neat marriage, a neat story, and I encourage you to get to know them and hear what God's doing in their lives and um, be intentional about walking with them. Y'all stand, and I'll dismiss you. <clears throat> Lord, I just pray that you will find a genuine, lowly, um, true people that are responding to your being so true, uh, people that are not um, hiding behind smiles or um, words or actions that aren't legitimate. Lord, I pray that there's a smile on our face and it's something that's born of um, joy in the difficult true journey. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will just work that in us to where we will be an authentic people that are in a very real, honest, uh, even raw and scary sometimes way, walking together on this difficult journey through these difficult, tr difficult trials that so put you on display. Lord, in some weird way, we are thankful for the trials as we recognize what they do to our faith, what they do to our dependence on each other. Lord, we pray that they will um, work what they're supposed to work in us. They'll bring us into deeper fellowship and deeper relationship with each other, deeper trust in you, that others that don't know you, others that aren't walking in fellowship with a genuine or with the people in a genuine way, that they'll want to be part of something like that. And whether it's Crosspoint or whether it's another church in town, we pray for genuine faith in the churches in this community. Something that's attractive to people that they see, man, those people are part of each other's lives. They care about each other, and they are enjoying a true living God. Lord, I want to pray for the lanes corporately as we present them this morning. We want to pray that they are equipped for glory and equipped for worship and wonder. I pray for Derek specifically, especially right now. I pray for his shepherding, Lord. I pray that he is equipped to lead his family well. I pray that he's being fueled in worship to love Lindsay like Christ loved the church and that the girls and Owen someday will see the gospel on display and how they see this family interact with each other. Lord, I pray that they will be part of each other's lives and they will connect to each other and uh, know and be known by the people in this body. We love you so much, Lord. We thank you for this, this message for your people this morning. We dine on it together and appreciate it. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.